Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, this week on the Debanking Economics podcast, the EU, it's in a bit of a state, isn't it? Germany narrowly has missed a recession, but it could go back there soon. We've got riots in Paris. In fact, we have for the last 31 weeks. The Italians, seemingly ungovernable and facing fines for their spending habits. People leaving Greece en masse and one in three young people in Spain out of work. Not exactly a sterling success, is it? In fact, thank God the UK hung on to sterling. So is the EU anti-growth? Is it just making matters worse? And how could it all be fixed? Simple question. That's this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, Steve, uh, we've spoken before about how the euro helps the German economy because it's worth less than the Deutschmark would have been if Germany was on its own, given its high level of exports. So Germany's got a trade advantage over the rest of Europe, actually against the rest of the world in a way, uh, with those countries with floating exchange rates don't have this benefit. But look at them now. GDP growth in Germany this year is expected to fall to half a percent or less. It's narrowly missed a recession. Forecasts for the EU put real GDP growth across the block at just 1.6% compared to 2.3% in the US. And within Europe, um, you know, it's a 0.1% for Italy at best. And the European Central Bank doesn't know what to do. It can't take interest rates any lower without going into negative territory. It's got rid of its QE program. Now it's offering cheap loans to banks, uh, what they're calling targeted long-term refinancing operation. But it's not monetary measures, is it, that's causing the problem in Europe. It's the fiscal stuff. It's the control on spending, isn't it? Mm. Which, when times get tough, which they are now, you want to spend your way out. But the European approach is, no, 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 it's austerity all the way. Yeah, and this is, I mean, you look at it and they've, they've got an incredible advantage out of the euro itself internally and even that they're stuffing up, which is an impressive achievement when you look at it. Because <laughs> you say Germany's going virtually in recession or running a 10% of GDP trade deficit, trade surplus. Yeah. And uh, and the reason is that at the same time as doing that, they're cutting back on government spending, so massive austerity there. And then the uh, Germans themselves aren't borrowing up big to buy housing. Uh, on the same scale that America did when when the similar policies were in, in effect there under the Clinton years, um, so the economy what actually if, if if you all try to save money what actually goes down is GDP growth falls yeah and and that's the situation we're in so it's 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 amazing how it's it's backfiring even on the one that it should be advantaging, which is Germany. Well, in Germany, they call it the Schuldenbremse, the debt break, uh, which is just an internal measure. Uh, that says federal government debt shouldn't be any more than 0.35% of GDP a year. Uh, and then for individual states within uh, Germany, they're saying by 2020, they, they, they can't run any structural deficit at all. So, uh, you know, it, 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 they are shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah, that's actually data I didn't know. That's in addition to the Maastricht Treaty limits in that Yeah, case. yeah, that's right. No, I mean, the, yeah. The, and the internal the, German ones only applied to Germany. Yeah. That's right. No, wow. they've gone. Okay. They've gone beyond the Maastricht. They, they're saying no. We can be even more austere uh, than Maastricht tells us. 
So, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know, now, here they are. They've got this big downturn in the uh, German car manufacturing, and we're told, you know, the large part of that is because they haven't shifted to, to electric cars. And yet, you know, so they, ha- they haven't made the structural change. The manif- You know, they still make good cars. They just haven't adapted fast enough. And yet there's never, you know, why? Because there's never been a, a cheaper time to borrow. Surely companies would be saying, okay, we just need to retool. But in fact, they're not borrowing and the, the private sector debt is falling yeah. uh, in Germany. And then, of course, government debt is falling and uh, it's massive trade. So that's the only thing adding a positive to the whole, whole thing. What you're doing is you're getting less investment, less growth, less GDP. And it, let's, let's go back to the basics here because this is, I mean, I'm trying to get this point through to people. And in, in one way, it illustrates one of the weaknesses of money itself uh, because People talk about money as being a means of exchange and a store of value. And the thing is, they actually have contradictory purposes. And this, I think, is Germany has fallen for this very, very badly. So if you individually decide to save, if you're earning 200x billion, whatever, euro a year, uh, and you decide to save by spending 100 million less per year, you, if your income is currently at $2 billion and your expenditure is $2 billion, you're saving nothing, you make that decision, you're spending $1.9 billion, you're, getting, uh, you, you, you're earning two, you're making a surplus, that looks great. But if there's a set amount of money, if you see a set amount of money and there's a total of 300x, let's say let's say working 300 euros, I'll leave the billions out of it. So you've got 100 euro in your account. Uh, you spend 100 per year on one sector, 100 per year in another. You're spending 200 per year. They're doing the same back on you. you you're getting 100. Your spending is 200 per year. Your income is 200 per year. You save nothing. You decide to spend 95 per year on them, and they still spend 100 on you. You save 10. But what's happened with the fixed amount of money in the system, mm. they've, the, your positive savings are then negative. Everything cancels out to zero. And this is, this is one reason I'd like to abolish the word savings from macroeconomics. Right. It's, it's to do with this. What, what you're describing is the circulation of money, in effect, aren't you? You're yeah. yeah if you look at circulation of money, you can't create more money by circulating it yeah. uh, alone. So if you're just circulating the stuff uh, and one, part, one of you decides to save, then your bank balance will increase by the amount that you decide to save so long as the others continue spending at the same rate. But you don't create any more money. So mm-hmm. that happens if your account goes from being 100 to 110, courtesy of your savings, the other two go from 100 each to 95. Your plus 10 becomes their minus 5 each, and there's no change. What actually happens is the amount of money you decide to save is the amount by which income falls because your spending expenditure is income. So if you decide to spend uh, 10 less per year and there's no compensating increase by the others, your attempt to save actually causes income to fall by precisely the same amount. And this is, this is the fallacy of composition Keynes called the widow's cruise. And when Germany is demonstrating it by trying to get everybody to save, GDP is falling. It just makes logical sense, doesn't it? That when yeah. uh, if, you, if, you, if you think that you're out of work and you've got an opportunity to get a job, but to do that job, you need a computer. To get that computer, you've got to borrow some money. You borrow the money for the computer because without the computer, you're still unemployed. I mean, it, mm. it makes sense that to, when times are tough, you have to borrow to get yourself out of difficulty. But that seems to be 
outside the German psyche, and of course they are determining the rules of the EU by law. Yeah, and this is why the common reason I'm not in, against private creation of money, because like in my own as you know, podcast listeners know, in my own personal case, uh, I lent money to one of my sisters to enable to establish a business. Uh, the amount of money I lent her is uh, three hundred and thirty thousand Australian dollars. That business is now turning over seventy five thousand dollars a year. Now, if she'd borrowed that money from a bank. Uh, that would have created $330,000 in the local economy, which would have added to the actual money in circulation. Mm. She would have been making that 75000 anyway. Uh, and the 75000 with an interest, if she, was pay, if she was paying 10% interest, which of course is, I'm not charging her interest, and the bank itself would charge half that, she'd still be coming out ahead because she's lending seventy five for a $30,000 per year servicing cost. Yeah. If you have a function because business, you've lent you them because it. you've lent to the money you've taken it out of the economy in effect that's money that you would have been spending I have Damien, trust me there are plenty of businesses in, in Amsterdam now beginning a lot of cash if I had the, <laughs> the repayment back so yeah so it's 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 it ends up being non-creative mm. to treat money as something you have to conserve and this is where I say the two functions of money predominant functions conflict with each other because being a medium of exchange means you want it to turn over being a store of value means you want to hoard it yeah, and they two work against each other. Yeah, so it's, it's the, the old have- it's the old running your running a country like uh, in this case running a continent like, like you're running a, a household like a budget. Household. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and, the and only- so, so I do see also, you, I mean, it, as being anti growth. It's felt more so, isn't it, when times are tough and you know whatever the cause of that that difficulty is, whether it's the the Trump trade wars that kicked all of this off. But look at a great UK example right now. Uh, if uh, if if the UK had already left the EU, then maybe they would have been able to help out British Steel because British Steel, uh, as we know, has gone into administration. It's the government say, well, we can't bail them out because of state aid regulations in the EU. Uh, it would be seen as a subsidy that doesn't exist for Germany or France or Spain or all the other countries that produce steel. Um, although, you know, ironically as well, being in the EU, steel is protected to an extent from China's low-cost steel because they've got tariffs on EU imports. So pros and cons there. Um, it's um, I don't know what you do in situations like that. Should should the British government be able to say, yeah, well, if we want to, we are going to bail them out? I'd actually say nationalise it. Mm. Well, I I'm sure that wouldn't be allowed either under EU. That's what, yeah, they think, yeah. There's so many ways in which the EU is a let's treat the world like a household pact. Yeah. And it's showing the impact. If we treat the world like a household, we'll end up in caves. Because ultimately, you're not investing, you're not replacing anything. Uh, every every downturn is an excuse to try to save more money. Each time you try to save more money, you have less income, and bang, ultimately you get to below replacement replacement levels, and you are in a, a permanent downward spiral. So that's why I'm hoping what's happening in Italy right now might be a way of breaking out of it, because the Italians are talking about creating their own alternative not quite parallel currency, but a parallel payment system involving tax credits, uh, the mini-bots. And if they do that and succeed, if Italy starts to grow, courtesy of creating a new form of, of, of debt fundamentally, um, then that may well signal, let's get out of this bloody EU shift to the rest of Europe. I certainly hope it will. Yeah, because they've got, uh, well, public debt's over 130% of GDP. Um, it's higher in Greece, of course, but it's growing a lot more in, in Italy. And, uh, you know, as we said earlier, there's the uh, there's limits, aren't there, on the amount of uh, government debt. So the stability and growth pact 
of the EU states that. That's 60% of GDP. 60% of GDP. Or any any individual year, the country's budget deficit can't exceed 3%. And Italy's gone well beyond that, obviously, and the EU is threatening all sorts of disciplinary procedures against them. Austerity, in other words, and we've seen what that did for Greece. So so how should the EU deal with a situation like this, then? If they were pro-growth... <laughs> Apart from abolishing itself, what? Well, I mean, actually, I mean, let's look at that one for a second. Because if we're going to have a common market, and just say we, you know, we get back to the basics of a common market, mm. uh, and you want to allow free trade within that common market, um, then you are going to say, well, okay, we need to ensure that there's rules to make sure that people aren't providing competitive advantage with with government money you can sort of see the argument for that and then i guess the moment the moment you do that that's where it all starts to steamroll in terms of of regulations you can't just have a common market and say look if you want to sub if you want to cross subsidize in your country then go for your life or can you no that that is a problem I and mean, you do have um you know, bigger than neighbor type, type policies but i think i have to say what what are they what are these policies doing are they ones that are um, this again is looking at growth in the absence of global warming, which I, I hate having to do. Mm. But so, if, you, if your objective is to get economic growth, then you want policies that stimulate that. And then if you look at the design of the Bancor by Keynes, a large part of that was to force countries that accumulated a surplus to have to spend that surplus. Uh, interest rates, which would then be paid to developing economies out of surpluses and so on. Yeah. So there is a possibility of designing a set of international rules that mean if you do try that sort of behaviour, then these are the consequences, which means you've got to spend apart from your own country. So you can... You well, can the EU could do that within the EU, couldn't they? They could say, it well, could, okay, I mean, if, if Germany, yeah, if Germany has, has got a big trade surplus, then the, the extra money it's making has got to go to Italy or to Greece and, uh, yeah, and help those countries exactly. like Exactly. So you could redesign the European Union as a form of Bancor, as a sort of, you know, Keynes's international trans- trade system, each with their own national currencies, each with their own uh, capacity to, to um, run their own domestic fiscal and monetary policy, but with a set of packs about the level of trade surpluses, which would be limiting them to no more than 2% of GDP, which is Keynes's target, uh, rather than the 10% of GDP that I know the Netherlands has in Germany, uh, Denmark, all, all the, even Switzerland, all the major industrialised countries, ser- seriously industrialised countries in Europe have trade surpluses of that 10% of GDP with the rest of the world and pretty close to that with um, with most of the European countries. I think I think Italy's in a balance, but that's because its imports have fallen more than its exports risen. But yes, there is a capacity to make it into a localised version of what Keynes wanted with the bank or. Right. So you wouldn't have any, a, a European central bank? Each country would run its own central bank? Yeah, I'd have. I mean, that's what you've got at the moment, just they're all constrained. I mean, Mm. there is a Greece central bank, but it's run by the EU. Yeah. And the Greece central bank does not have any printing presses. They actually, I think, like they distributed the euro printing presses around Europe. And I think the Greeks got the five, five, the five euro press. And one of the, they actually had to destroy that press. So they can't even make the notes. Um, so there's there's real limitations from the European central bank's control of all the other central banks. Of course, when the crisis hit, the ECB told the German central bank to shut down the bank, banks, which it did, So uh, and then did over Cyprus. So at the moment, they're all under the thumb of the ECB. But if you um, let them, you know, let it go back to the stage where there's national currencies again, use the euro, the euro as, the, as like the European currency unit used to be, a form of currency of international trade. One little additional thing I'd add to that is that I know people are pissed off when they go, and I've certainly experienced it recently, you go through one country to the other, you've got to change your money from one form of currency to another, and you get hit with a nice, nice large profit margin by the merchant doing mm. the trading. I would have the European central banks 
operating international currency exchanges within Europe at 100% cost-free. In other words, if you want to change, if the, if the ratio of, of drachma to, uh, to lira is uh, 10 to 1, then you get 10 to 1, no profit margin. Make it, a, make it a loss-leading business by the central bank, which, of course, could afford to run a loss because they create their own money. So you could have no problem anymore. You could go from one country to another with different national currencies without losing a cent. And that's what I think we need to make uh, return to national currencies palatable in Europe. Right. So if we trying to that we're doing a model on the fly here, but uh, but maybe we'll get somewhere with this. So if the EU was a trading block, a free trade block, yeah. uh, and you said, well, okay, the moment you run into a trade surplus, then somehow you're going to get uh, taxed in a way that the the, the benefits you're getting are within the block. And the benefit and the, the will be distributed to to other countries within the block, and the reason why you're doing so well is partially because of the block, because you've got these these open borders within, and you've probably got tariffs to um t- to protect you from competition from outside. Mm. So it's so it's fair enough that you you're paying for that for that privilege. That's going to help the other countries to uh, to develop in in the meantime. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we don't need a European Central Bank. We don't need any of that fiscal control. And you actually could say, well, okay. If Greece wants to uh, run a, a large deficit to to try and boost its own economy, um, th- and it's it's doing that through its own central bank, what do we care? Because presumably the upshot of all of that is at some point they're going to see some growth, and uh, and you know so that so we won't have to provide support for them quite so much. Mm-hmm. So it actually it works out to being a positive if it can be done, but it means changing the debt philosophy that the yeah. Germans have, and they're so locked into it. I don't think they're going to do it. It it is a big philosophical shift, isn't it? Yeah, I think the Italians, unfortunately, uh, are going to be the ones who lead the way out because, uh, you, if, and this is one reason, unfortunately, that the, the right tends to get things done while the left talks about getting stuff done, uh, <laughs> with a you know xenophobic uh, nationalist leader in charge. Uh, Salvini, uh, he doesn't. He's quite happy to annoy people and break treaties because that's how you get attention, and he enjoys disrupting anyway. So I think the Italians may well come in with a this uh, their uh, mini bot system, uh, enable it to increase the level of economic activity in Italy. Italy starts to boom, and then in that situation, when you're seeing a country which has been stagnating literally for more than twenty years now, Italy's nominal GDP is, I think, the same level now as it was over twenty years ago. If you see it starting to grow, finally. Um, then this is showing, well, breaking away from the European Union is not a source of disaster. It's a source of liberation. Uh, it won't be long before the same thing is thought about by other countries, and hopefully this damn experiment can finally come to an end. Yeah. Uh, but the common market, I think, is still a good thing. But it's well, The common market, for sure. You can, you, you, it's, it's the whole emphasis upon minimising government deficits was the wrong emphasis. You could have been trying to minimise trade deficits. But you and know this, what? If you talk to yeah. the man in the street, if you ask people why they voted for Brexit, for example, they wouldn't mm. give any of these arguments. They wouldn't say, oh, it's all to do with the euro or it's all to do with um, uh, austerity controls within within Europe, perhaps because it's, mm. not, it's not impacted Britain quite so much. They would say, no, it's the burden of rules and regulations that's stifling growth. Uh, and you could look at that and you could say, well, but you sort of need that if you've got to, you know, get back to if you've got a, a free market you need some sorts of regulations don't you but is that stifling growth is that actually part of the problem where is the facebook for example or the amazon or the google coming out of europe where is europe silicon valley we're about the same size population as the united states uh, europe's mm. got none of, the, none of those things 
not the same major corporations, but it, you, know, you do have in, in, in like I know the Netherlands has got a fairly good uh, IT innovation hub. There are bits and pieces of it, but there's nothing in that sense. Yeah, the, even in terms of car manufacturers now, uh, when you think of car manufacturers, you don't think of the Europeans, as you were saying yourself earlier, that they, they haven't got into the electric world anywhere near as fast as they should have, given their engineering advantages over America at the time. So there's a whole lot of areas where Europe has really fallen behind. And again, it's I think it's this, it's this anti-debt focus when it should be anti-trades deficit focus. Yeah, but people are saying, no, no, no. It's the it's the controls, it's the regulations. So, for example, Nigel Farage, and uh, you'll you'll enjoy this one, uh, given you know that we should be doing more to tackle um, uh, climate change. And I know you're not mm-hmm. a fan of cap and trade schemes, which is how the EU is trying to tackle uh, uh, emissions. But Nigel Farage is saying, yeah, it's the European Emissions Trading Scheme. That's what got uh, British Steel into financial d- difficulties. But, uh, you know, at least the EU is doing something about the environment. Yeah, the most, the, the, nothing which I find quite fascinating. I don't know enough of the details, but about the UK being without coal-based power for the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, that's I, I wasn't aware they were anywhere near being able to do that. Well, in so a few years, they're going to close them all down. There's only a few years to go. Once the, they decommission the last coal power stations, there's no coal power in the UK. Wow. Yeah, well, that's that's a fairly significant change. But yeah, I mean, I think the the, the role of regulations and bureaucracy. I'm, as you know, no great fan of bureaucracy. But um, a lot of the rules that exist are rules that actually are maintaining, trying to maintain quality. I mean, the Grenfell situation, for example, had better result in the regulation. You can't put fire inflammable cladding on the outside of high-rise businesses. Right, but it, and, that, but that's a, a job for the UK government to determine that, isn't it, rather than the EU? Yeah, or? You know, the, it, yeah the, I think the, I mean, the EU rules largely, I think the damaging side is about trying to restrain government deficits, not allow them to happen. Mm. That's been the major... Right, uh, but, but if they didn't, the if, they, rules, if they ignored that and said yes, all our rules are to do with the quality of the products that are delivered yeah. to ensure that. And then, like you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see you know, CE on the back of all your um, devices. That this is a lot of the European rules turning up as international standards because you want to sell into the European Union. You've got to have the, the same standards they require, and this is actually sometimes raising the quality bar for some of the products. But I mean, at the same time, one of the most annoying things is that rule about copyright that they fell in for recently where it means every time you click on a website, you've got to go through three no, no. bloody warnings nuts. about, you know, we we value your privacy, therefore click this button and give over everything Who to cares? Us. Just get out, exactly. get out of the way. We're sick of it. Exactly. Well, that, know, that, that, that is an example of, uh, yeah, an EU regulation that's just making Leads everyone's that, life yeah. more inconvenient. Absolutely. But, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes people get things wrong. But I mean, the other thing is, is the, yeah, so the, there's that element of, so there's the, the austerity element of the EU, which I'd say is perhaps, um, you know, maybe is to the fore in Italy, but perhaps less of an influence on Brexit. There is the the whole uh, uh, bureaucracy side, which is definitely part of uh, Brexit. And the other reason why Brexit pushed ahead uh, was uh, because of this fear of foreigners. And that was largely driven by the wealth divide. How much of that is down to the rules of the EU? I, I suspect not a lot because no, yeah. you know, we have, I mean, we've got, you know, we've We've got extreme politics as a result of all of this, and we've got it in America as much as we've got it here. And also, if you look at what happened with Thatcher, I mean, that, mm. the shutting down manufacturing coal, and now shutting down coal looks like not such a bad thing in the long term. But of course, it deindustrialized and deemployed a huge part of the, the midlands of America, of the UK, yeah, and the north. Yeah. All the wealth is made in the south, which is where the finance sector is and where the finance sector workers live. So you have a huge internal wealth divide, which you can't blame on the EU at all. So. 
a, tr- a trading block makes a great deal of sense. A, a, a common market uh, to yeah. make it work, you've you've you obviously need to look at competition um, and ensure that it's fair. So, but maybe, but maybe part. I mean, does that mean you don't allow state aid? Um, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to figure out how how you could go back to the basics of the EU without saying ah yes but we need this and we need that so we need to look at uh, state aid and say well we can't allow that because that's unfair competition then we need regulations around the environment because we've all got to take a considered position on that then we've got to ensure quality standards and then uh, and and then you know what about the free movement of people and free movement of capital how much of that is needed for the EU as a trading block to uh, mm-hmm. to function efficiently and if we did all of that and got that right are we still going to find ourselves as an innovative continent, or are we better just uh, separating it out and everyone just does their own thing? But at the same time, America's got the same basic story. You've got international, you've got national standards throughout the the nation, which is this has always been the image in some way. They wanted to create a United States of Europe mm. uh, because they saw the advantage of a common market for the Europe, for America, and a currency was part of that. So I can see where the ideas. Uh, to, to try to bring it about came from, but they made the mistake of putting all the constraints on government spending. They didn't look at the difference between the state spending and which the states are equivalent in America to the countries of Europe. Um, and, the, and the welfare systems as well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's what they've, they've created the worst possible mess as a way of attempting to emulate America. Mm. Yeah, because there surely would be in some of these things, economies of scale. So if you looked at the the way health is dealt with, for example, that is dealt with individually by each separate company. There's an example of something where you could say, well, actually, uh, maybe that is something that could be developed Europe wide. You know, let's yeah. have a, let's have a national health service for Europe. Uh, yeah. Let's let's, yeah. let's operate the same procedures, share the same knowledge, give mm. the same access. Uh, then you actually wouldn't have people doing um, you know going on holidays for health because they could yeah. get it anywhere. Yeah, and so there are some things which you would bring about at the European level would be a wise idea, and of course maintaining the the, the economies of scale of a of a, of a continent wide uh, market that all makes sense. So there's there's way to redesign it. The main thing is to change the focus from restricting government deficits to restricting trade deficits. Mm. That could all happen, though, couldn't it? Don't you sense that there's a there's a change, there's potential for change? I mean, we've seen quite big changes within uh, within the last. Uh, EU elections, uh, some of the old school is being turfed out. Uh, it is a more liberal-leaning uh, EU going forwards, I think, with the exception perhaps of uh, the Brexit party. And one I or think two that's others. feasible. Yeah, I think that's because at the moment, I think what you're looking at is this is all starting to fail. I mean, because uh, if, if you look at what the European Union was set out to be. They really thought this would be a success story. Mm. They thought they would grow more. They thought they'd be uh, by, by applying the, the, the was it the Schult, they called the German Schult principles to the entire continent yeah. uh, by being more frugal, by uh, they, they'd be more efficient. You'd grow Schuldenbremse more. Schuld and Bremsey is what, yeah. Huh? The, the Schuld and yeah. Bremsey, yeah. The, uh, yeah. The, yeah. The trade. So the, the, so the vision was for success and growth. Now, it's actually the outcomes being the, the opposite. I mean, they call it the growth and stability pact, okay? And it's been the degrowth and instability outcome. So given that, people are trying to get out of it. And you are, you are now going through a breakdown phase, mm. probably with the Italians making the most significant first move. So in that situation, I'm seeing some uh, wind back from the Europeans obsessed about centralization. Um, uh, I think uh, Victor, Victor 
uh, Constanzo, who was one of the the ECB board members whom I've spoken with some time ago, uh, was anti. I know uh, he he was defending the European Union when we were just went to had a debate in uh, London some years ago. He's now coming out with stuff that sounds like me since he's left the board. That doesn't apply to Peter Pratt, I might add, uh, but it's one of them. So there are some noises coming out of some of the European flunkies that, uh, you know, we need to change direction. So there is some, and certainly you're seeing the way the votes went in the most recent European Parliament elections. Um, you know, I, I think the guys in the centre are getting scared and therefore there may be some sensible concessions coming out of it. But central to all of this is abolishing the ECB and the euro? Turning the euro back into the ECU. I'd be quite happy to have the euro as a, as a form of currency for international trade. So you'd have prices being set in euros. You could send euros from Germany to France. But when it came to oper- on the operational level, they'd be converted from, from euro to francs and euro to mark and so on. On a fi- fixed or floating basis? Oh, Again, it was uh, Keynes's original idea was a fixed one, where if you started running a trade deficit, you'd be forced right. to devalue. If you ran a trade surplus, you'd be forced to spend that money into the other countries in the block. Right. So the so, ECB's role in all of this actually would be the regulator to... It'd be a pegger. It'd be the it'd be a, a pegging system. I mean, you've got the so European... a bit like China right. in some ways. They, yeah. they, what they, they call, I figure, the... the, the uh, the T3 balances, I keep on forgetting the terminology, but the enormous uh, imbalances that exist at the moment, uh, you know, Italy effectively notionally owes Germany's billions and billions of dollars, a pound, a euro, um, they, the target, target three uh, levels. Um, it, that may well be a ballistic weapon that the Italians decide to use. So we're not going to want to the, the, the uh, So the, how would uh, that work on international currency markets? So if I had a bunch of US dollars and I wanted to buy something in Europe, it really wouldn't matter if I bought uh, lira or Deutschmark or pounds, assuming Britain yeah, still you just, in it. You go, you go through, go through the ECB and they would then convert it to the relevant domestic currency. But it wouldn't matter what domestic currency you choose because they're all going to be, you know, pegged re- to the euro. Yeah, that's right. So it, it, it could be effective. It could. It could work, I agree. Uh, it's a question just, do you get the change in the focus from government deficits to trade deficits? Mm. Which is a shift in thinking, as we say. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, with all of that, if there was a big education program that went along with that, I mean, maybe Britain would want to be part of it because who wouldn't we want to be part of a common market? That actually worked. Yeah. 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 That, that, that actually continue with the pound and, and um, gave you stability in international trade rather than instability. Do you need free movement of people for that to work within that common market? Do you need? Yeah, no, I, I think neither free market of labour nor capital. This is the this is the difficult one because again, one of Keynes's for not not well remembered remarks is one of my good mate Ron Andreessen keeps referring to. He said, "And above all else, let finance be national." Um, so the extent to which finance was internationalised was seen by Keynes as a massive problem. And I think again, our history has borne out how, how accurate he was on that front. So I would want to have restrictions on capital movement. And again, in terms of uh, movement of people, um, to some extent, you might, because you're never going to create the United States of Europe. It's different mm. languages, different cultures, nothing like the American, relative American homogeneity. I know there's variations, but relative American homogeneity it doesn't apply over here. So you would have to have um, restrictions on how many could migrate from one country to another. Um, that just makes sense, I think to maintain your own culture over time. Uh, and 
But you would invest in the capital. You would make you would make that investment because you knew you had a market of two hundred and fifty million yeah, people. Yeah, you can sell into the rest. People, of, yeah, you can invest mm. domestically to sell internationally. Yeah. Rather than moving your capital from one spot to another, to take advantage of wage differentials and so on, which is what's happening now. There we are. We've sorted it out again in half an hour. We've fixed all the problems of the EU. I don't know why everyone's having so much difficulty with it. Good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, next week, uh, having done that, well, look, it'll be easy. We'll fix world peace and uh, solve the world hunger crisis. If only it was that simple. We'll find something to talk about. A fresh new idea next week. Another edition of the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.